Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to hear your voices as we worship God together. And now we're going to dive into his word. So I hope you got a Bible with you. Go ahead and get that open to the New Testament book of James. We're going to be in this book, Lord willing, until right up to Easter. Uh, if this is a new book for you, I've got kind of a quick flyover there in your notes. Quick orientation. Uh, there are no fill in the blanks because we don't have time to fill in the blank. I'm just going to read this to you, get you introduced a little bit to this book. So notes about the author. James is the author. He's the half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus had a younger brother, a couple of them, and James is one of them. You can see those passages in Matthew 13 and Galatians 1. James uh, did not believe that his older brother was the Messiah until he saw his older brother raised from the dead, which would probably have changed your mind about some things if you saw crucifixion, and then three days later, Jesus, your brother, appears to you incarnate bodily and says, look, James, it's time, right? And so James then believes, and then he would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem for another 30 years or so. You can see stories of that in the book of Acts if you want to read those later on. So that's notes about the author, notes about the audience. So mostly uh, the audience reading this letter originally were Jewish believers that were scattered by persecution, and you can see those passages. One, you see the scattered language, dispersion language used in verse one of our passage. And then you go back to Acts chapter 18 where Emperor Claudius issues an edict to expel Jews, uh, both ethnic Jews who didn't believe in Messiah as well as ethnic Jews who did believe in the Messiah. And the audience here was the ethnic Jews who did believe in the Messiah. So verse one, of our passage, that's got, we'll put the chalkboard away. All right, so that's, that's kind of the big idea, author, audience. Verse one of our passage, you see that language down there in your Bible, 12 tribes dispersed abroad. 12 tribes is obviously Israel language. Jacob had 12 sons, Israel had 12 sons. They were known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's Israel language. Now, interestingly, and we don't have time to fully unpack this, Israel language in the New Testament often refers to both Jews and Gentiles who have trusted in the long-promised Messiah sent by God. So you read books like Galatians, and you see this Jew and Gentile all in the covenant family, Israel language, sons of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, right? We, We sing that song, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you believe in Jesus. So that language doesn't exclude Gentiles in New Testament, but... The reason that it's right to probably think that most of his audience was Jewish believers, ethnically Jewish believers in the Messiah is, number one, James was the leader for 30 years of the church in Jerusalem. And two, uh, the expulsion edict from Claudius was an expulsion edict of ethnically Jewish people. So when he talks about the 12 tribes flung out, dispersed and scattered, there's good reason to think that maybe there's a hint that his audience is largely or mostly ethnically Jewish believers in Christ. All right, so that said, now let's dive in. James chapter one, follow along as I read. I'm gonna read the first 12 verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
He should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So if you've ever had a friend who could get away with being blunt with you because you knew this person loved you, you've had a friend like James. James is the no-nonsense, tell it like it is, be very direct, don't beat around the bush kind of author. We're going to see that as we move through this letter. It's often noted that even the great theologian of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, struggled, interestingly, to include the book of James in the New Testament canon. Early on, he struggled to believe that James actually belonged in the Bible. And you're going to see why, when we get to James chapter 2, why there was such a struggle during the era of the Protestant Reformation about whether to include this in the canon of Scripture. But here's the thing. This letter is punchy. This letter, is, I mean, there are 59 commands in just 108 verses, 59 commands. So practically every other verse is James saying, live like this and not like that. Think like this and not like that. He is telling us what the Christian life looks like in real life. And he's making some awkward statements. He is the kind of show me the money apostle. He says, I don't want to see you talk about it. I want to see you do it. I want to see it in action. Living faith. That's what James is after. So, four major themes that James develops. He's going to develop them further later, but he's going to introduce them right here in the opening verses of this letter. And the first theme is this, trials. Trials. Hopefully you still got your Bible open. Look down with me again at verse 2. Consider it a great joy, or often it's known as count it all joy. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know something. What do you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So for the sake of illustration, imagine with me um, booths. You're, you're walking somewhere and you see these kind of booths with sort of life philosophies on the offer. And they're trying to sell you on subscribing to their ideas. I'll help you picture that. So I had the privilege and joy of going this, this past year one day to March Madness. And I'm a huge basketball fan. And so that was an awesome experience. And when I was walking into the arena for the game, on the way in, there were all these booths. 
and there were these people who were marketing their different products and they would try to get you over to their booth by giving some kind of gimmick. You know, you'd have a little bitty basketball and you could shoot it in the goal and you could get a, a you know, fridge magnet or something with the company logo or you get a thermos or something like that, right? So there's, they're selling their wares, they're marketing their products. And so imagine that, right? Life philosophies to reel you in. So here are a few of them. Atheism has a booth. There is no God. There's no ultimate authority. So live for your highest good and the betterment of man. Or don't, it's fine. So there's atheism. Hedonism. You only live once. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we all die. Enjoy every pleasure you can get your hands on because it won't be here for very long. And then there are even distortions of truth like the prosperity gospel which would say God is here to help you realize your dreams. Have faith and let God bring success into your life. And you can imagine people lining up at each one of those life philosophy booths and then there's the James booth. And James's booth doesn't have basketball, it doesn't have any fridge magnets, it just says, count it all joy when you face trials. That's how James rolls, right? This is, this is what most would call uh, a conversation ender. And it's how James starts. Right out of the gate, he just says, I'm just going to tell you what it's like. I'll tell you what the call of faithful Christianity involves. It's a tough opening line, but what's he saying? If you're taking notes, he's saying this, trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. He's not just talking about trials, if you will, in general. He's not talking about suffering, in, I think it could apply to various kinds of suffering, we'll get to there in just a moment. But he's talking about trials and tests that we experience on account of our faith in Christ. It's uniquely located there, living in a hostile world, face against the wind in this world while we put our trust and live faithfully with God. So you may remember similar language that's used by James's older brother, Jesus. When Jesus is preaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blends a number of themes. Here's what he says. Jesus said, blessed, it's the Greek word makarios. Makarios are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, makarios are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice this one. Blessed, makarios are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it drops into that one. Double clicks on that one. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Put all that together, verse 11 of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 combines four things. Blessing, makarios, joy, he says rejoice and be glad. Suffering, he says when others revile you and reward when he says your reward is great in heaven. And here, James, his little brother, puts the same four things in our passage. Joy, verse one, verse two rather, count it all joy. And then look at verse 12. Blessed, same word, makarios. Makarios is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive, and here's the reward, a crown of life. James isn't making this up. He's getting it straight from the one he calls Lord, the one he calls Savior. The point is that the most 
acute test and trial of James's audience is that of being persecuted on account of their faith in Jesus. So think about this this year. So we've been talking about too strong, year one, year two. Year two is, is about going strong, representing Jesus, living for him, welcoming others, speaking the gospel, being unashamed to speak the words of the gospel. Here's the question. Are you prepared for the eye roll this year? Are you prepared for people to roll their eyes and you still count it all joy? That's what James is gunning for here, to gladly accept resistance as part of the cost of faithfulness to Jesus. That's where the joy is blended with the trials and blended with the reward and the endurance. So trials are inevitable. Second, trials are purposeful. Trials are purposeful. His language, knowing that the testing of your faith does something. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Think about this. Um, People around us study us when we suffer. People who aren't Christians, if they know you're a Christian, they watch you particularly closely when you suffer. It's like they want to see after the company layoff, what did she do? After the adoption falls through, what did they do? After she was made fun of in high school because she didn't talk like her friends, what is she going to do now? In the midst of this, what is the response of this Christian? Rico Tice is a minister of the gospel in a wonderful church, All Souls Church in Langham in in London. He was, as a child, he came to faith uh, in school and it was just a radical 180 turn, everything flipped upside down for him and he became a bold witness in his school. And there was a lot of heat and pushback and he was made fun of in school for his faith. And years later, one of his schoolmates wrote these words about seeing Rico Tice in school. I knew Rico at school, though not well. We were in different classes, though we played in the same cricket team. That's a sport, apparently, uh, just for the rest of us. And I distinctly remember Rico's conversion at school. I suspect, listen to this, if you asked most of our contemporaries, they too would remember it even though it was over 30 years ago. Why was it so memorable? For two reasons. Firstly, the merciless reaction shown toward Rico, the constant public and private attempts to humiliate him and get him to relinquish his newfound faith, which went on for many, many months. Secondly, what really stuck with me was how Rico carried himself during such a difficult time. The easy option would have been to turn back or keep quiet, but Rico stuck to his faith and kept talking about his faith. Although I didn't realize this at the time, Rico's conversion and resolute faith sowed the first seed in my mind. Who was it that gave Rico the strength to continue down such a difficult path? That was the first stage in my own journey, which many years later led me to Jesus. James is saying here at the opening of his letter, the testing of your faith is not a waste of time. The testing of your faith is gonna produce something. He says, count it all joy. Consider it joy when we face trials. Now, let me just say, 
what might be obvious, but I just want to say it out loud. Count it all joy doesn't mean Christians have to pretend trials are fun. It's not like, hey, you know what we're supposed to do. You do the joy thing. You put on the plastic smile, you go to church, and you act like nothing's happened. That, that is not what James is talking about. He's not saying Christians need to pretend trials are fun. He's saying Christians should know that in the hands of God, no trial is wasted. It's not that trials are enjoyable. It's that no trial is wasted. And in the hands of God, our Father, good and faithful as he is, trials produce something that we are after, that we positively want, namely resilience of faith, grit, endurance, we sang a song in church when I was a kid growing up by Andre Crouch. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. Is there anything more compelling than a Christian who worships God through it all. James is after that agenda here. So trials, second theme, prayer. Prayer, look down in verse five. Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. There's prayer. Asking God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Here's a big idea for us to walk away with, is prayer reveals your actual theology. Again, James is the show me the money guy. He's not the, he's not the teach me a seminar on prayer. He wants to see it. So the practice of prayer demonstrates a conviction that you really do believe God is able, that you really do believe God is good, that you really do believe God is faithful. How do you express the belief that your willpower is not the source of your endurance? According to James, you prove it by praying. The practice of prayer announces to everyone, this is a person who does not trust in himself, but trusts in God. It's you Every time you pray, you, as it were, hold up a sign that says, you're the one who can get me through this. You, you know, as if you've been here for any length of time, I am burdened by the deconversion movement, the statistics of people who are abandoning the Christian faith. Um, I've talked often about that. I want this to be a place, this church to be a place where if you have wrestled with doubts, you feel the freedom to wrestle with those doubts in the presence of God, right along with the rest of us. I've said that. Let me come at it from the other angle, though, because I don't think it's just a one-angle kind of thing. With that said, not everybody's deconversion story is real. Some are acting in bad faith. Let me put it in a James kind of way, a pain line, blunt kind of way. You have to meaningfully be converted before you can deconvert with a straight face. How quickly some, get yourself a Twitter account, don't, but anyway. <laughs> how quickly some have moved from supposed belief 
to ridiculing the word of God. And I think James, were he here, would say, I see your true colors shining through. He punches through the veneer in his letter. Because when Christians suffer, according to James, here's what they do. They pray. When their world is falling apart, they run to God, right? That's the point. Yes, when they run to God, they might sound irreverent because they're working through some stuff, right? When they run to God, they might sound like the book of Psalms. True Christians in the book of Psalms, they process their angst and their confusion in the presence of God and in the context of worship. They don't do it to gain Twitter followers. They don't do it to secure approval from those who mock the Lord. True Christians, even in suffering, prove their faith by prayer. And James says, I know you're suffering. Guess what? It's time to start praying. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask of God. That's prayer. Remember, the context of this asking, look at the verse right before it. The context of this asking for wisdom is trials. Wisdom for trials. According to James, when we're going through trials, our most pressing need is not comfort, but wisdom. Now that is a stunning, shocking kind of statement, but James is down for stuff like that, right? James is one of those, buckle in, you're going to fall out of your seat when I say this next thing, right? That's James. He's that guy. Our most pressing need in suffering is not comfort, it's wisdom. Why? Why would James say that? Because James is steeped in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's nothing greater to discover and to get the Old Testament would say, in all you're getting, get wisdom. There's a woman symbolically walking through the pages of the book of Proverbs. She's walking through the streets and she says, everybody who wants to live and find deep blessing, follow me. And guess what her name is? Lady Wisdom. She calls out to everybody in the streets and she says, follow me and you get everything. James speaks in that kind of way. He speaks here, you see this, this word that he uses, Various kinds of trials. So process that with me for just a second. Not all your trials are going to look the same way. They didn't look the same way in 2023. They're not going to look the same way in 2024. If I have, let's say I have 10 experiences of trials in 2024, they will be, James's word, various. They're going to weigh different one against another. They're going to come from different sources. They're, they're going to be used by God for different purposes. It's not flatten out the purpose of God in trials. It's not, it's not, he's not a one-trick pony. There's all kinds of things that God does in different kinds of trials. So what do trials do? All kinds, I mean, goodness gracious, trials are the multitasker by which God refines our faith. God, trials smoke out our idols. Trials wake us up from slumber. It was C.S. Lewis, who famed, great defender of the faith, who famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasure and shouts in our pain. Pain, he said, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Trials do all kinds of, trials and affliction humbles the proud. Check out Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. Check out the apostle Paul, his thorn in the flesh that kept him from self-reliance. Trials do all kinds of things. Trials sweeten promises. 
One of my favorite historical heroes is John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And here's one of the things that he says about how trials sweeten the promises of God. How grand is the starry night? He was a master of metaphor. How grand is the starry night? But if it were always day, the stars could not be seen. The firmament of scripture, if I may so speak, is spangled with exceeding great and precious promises as the sky is with stars, but the value and beauty of many of them are only perceptible to us in the night of affliction. And if you have ever experienced the night of affliction with faith in God, you know those words are true. It's sometimes it's in the night that we most clearly see the stars of God's promises. And so James says, I know you're in trials. I know it wasn't easy to lose your home and everything and be exiled and kicked out of Jerusalem. But here's what you need to do now. Pray for wisdom. And what's he mean? He means pray that your trials won't blind your eyes to the faithfulness of God. Pray that you will steward your pain in a way that shines light on the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Pray that this hardship won't kill your faith but will send your roots only deeper. That's you asking for wisdom on the heels of trials. And James says, when you ask for that, guaranteed God will give it. Ask in faith with no doubting. What if the heaviest suffering we faced in 2024 led to the deepest prayer, led to the deepest communion with God? What if in the dark we saw the stars, the stars of God's promises, we came, became even more convinced of the nearness and goodness of God? Friends, no matter what this year holds, your spiritual growth this year will depend on prayer. Trials, prayer, wealth. Wealth. So verse nine, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. The richness and wealth theme is gonna come up later again, so we'll move a little bit more quickly, but here's a big idea. The rich in James often refers to unbelievers, but with a note of warning to believers. So, for example, right here, I mean, it is the withering vine that is related to the rich. That's almost Psalm 1-like, the chaff that the wind drives away. And then if you just fast forward, I'll pull it up on the screen, but if you've got your Bible open, you can just turn to James chapter 5. So James 5, here it is. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is ultimate eschatological judgment language. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, 
The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. I mean, this is strong. This is James actually pulling in, we'll see it when we get to chapter five, pulling in denunciations from the ancient prophet Isaiah and he's pulling them into this own context. Now, what happened in Isaiah? Why did Isaiah use this kind of language hundreds of years earlier? He used this language to rebuke the powerful and godless nations around Israel and he did so rebuking them in the hearing of God's people. Why? So as to keep God's people from being taken in from being absorbed into the ways of the world around them. And James is saying the same thing. He said, I'm, I'm gonna denounce the godless nations that hanker after power and wealth, and I'm gonna do it in your hearing so that you will be shaped and informed in the way of wisdom. Remember who James's older brother is. Remember how his older brother taught. Jesus warned against finding security and wealth. You read through the, the gospel, you read through, you know, in many places in the Bible, there's this kind of triad of suffering. Uh, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. When you read one, kind of the other two are coming along and they're bundled together as kind of a picture of uh, what's broken since the fall. Orphan, widow, stranger. But there's not just this trio um, of suffering, but there's a duo in the gospels of unbelief. And the duo of unbelief in the pages of the Gospels are the religious and the rich. Jesus has a lot of edgy statements to make to both of those crowds, the self-made and the self-righteous. It's hard, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says in another place, woe to you who are rich for you have received your comfort. Mary, Jesus' mother, James' mother as well, when she heard the news that she was going to give birth to the Christ, she sang a song and some of the words in that song were these. He, God, has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It's, it's about self-sufficiency. James is not issuing a blanket rebuke to all those who have been blessed with wealth, who are believers. Because there are some who have been blessed with wealth who are like Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She's faithful. She serves, she cares, she loves, she's generous. She doesn't come onto the business end of James's rebukes and denunciations about the rich. The point is, what James is really after here when he says, let the lowly be exalted, let the rich boast in their humiliation is to say to them and to say to us, choose your heroes wisely. It's saying, remember your identity as a Christian. Remember who you are. You are not your net worth. You are not your holdings. And not just remember who you are, remember the story that you're living in. You belong to God. You've been claimed by him. Your wealth didn't and can never buy you salvation. However, your wealth, warning, may deceive you into thinking you can have a good life without the gospel. And that's where James's warning comes in. You can have a good life without the death of Jesus Christ in your place, that you can be okay with God without repenting and believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about the absolute contrast between the message of Christianity and the message of our world. An affluent culture says, the, the person who dies with the most toys 
wins. The Christian worldview says the person who dies with the most toys still dies. And then they face God. And let's see what happens next. If they have rejected God and his Messiah, Jesus, they will suffer forever. If they have embraced God through Jesus Christ, they will be safe forever. And James 1 is such a needed reminder. Hear this. You will be shaped by the people you find endlessly interesting. If those people you find endlessly interesting live lavish lives that are largely ignoring God, except maybe to appropriate him for their own ends, you are being mentored in foolishness. James would say, start finding better heroes. I think of elderly believers I've known over the years and had the privilege of knowing them and in some cases had the privilege of preaching their funerals after they lived a long life of faithfulness to Jesus. Not known by the world, not heralded, but of whom the world is not worthy. Godly people, servants, selfless. I think of some of you here who have in days past confessed sin and then years later you are helping other believers walk out into the light and know there's safety in the light. I think of Christians with special needs who won't likely speak at any massive evangelical conferences but are known in heaven as those who are pure in heart. And James says, in the end, everybody get clear. In the end, there's gonna be a surprising reversal. The low are gonna be high and the high are gonna be low. And the woman that he and Jesus both called mom used to sing a song around the house that said, God will satisfy the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. And it was formative for James. Because James says, you Christians that I'm writing to, you've lost nearly everything. I'm not making light of that, but what I'm saying is don't grovel over the goings and comings of people chasing something that will fail them in the end. And that leads to the final point, endurance. Endurance actually bookends our passage. Verse one to 12, right there at the beginning in verse two, you see it, considered a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then at the end of our passage, Verse 12, blessed, makarios, blessed, happy is the one who endures trials. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And in this way, by bookending this text with endurance, James is basically saying to us, I want to give you a map of the year 2024. And I want to give you a map right here at the outset of this year to help you navigate in such a way that you reach the end with faith in Jesus. And he says, in order to do that, I need you to grasp four things. One, by way of review, trials are normal. Prayer is vital. Wealth is transient. Endurance is rewarded. 
Trials are normal, prayer is vital, wealth is transient, endurance is rewarded. This year, hear me, if you're going to endure, you're gonna need to hold fast to Christ. You're gonna need to close your hand around the truths once for all delivered to the saints, the truths of the gospel. You need to remember that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior and because he died, no sin that you fall into this coming year can keep you from God's mercy. You need to remember that because he rose and because Jesus advocates for you in heaven, you can pray and find a throne of grace that opens up and you can find grace and help in your time of need. You're going to need to remember that because Jesus gives his spirit to all who have repented and believed, you can experience God's nearness and presence even on your darkest day. These, friends, are the keys to blessed endurance.